Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates who pay to troll. Looking at the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If you've been paying attention lately to news about tech policy coming out of Europe, uh, you've probably been seeing lots of talk about the GDPR, uh, the General Data Protection uh, Regulation, which is an important new regulation that is already having widespread impact on the internet, some of which may be good, and other parts of which uh, some of us are at least a little bit troubled about. Uh, but Europe is not done uh, regulating certain aspects of the internet. I don't know if they'll ever be done. Uh, and as I noted recently in a post on TechTurt, we should be especially worried about the copyright reform package that is up for a vote in just a few weeks. Uh, the EU has been debating copyright reform for well, a few years now, and the pendulum seems to keep swinging back and forth between some good ideas and some bad ideas, depending on who is in charge of moving the issue forward. Uh, but unfortunately, it appears that the pendulum has finally settled in on, well, a whole bunch of bad ideas. <laughs> um, as it currently stands, the proposal would include a number of really problematic pieces that would have a seriously negative and damaging impact on the internet, in my opinion at least, uh, and it will harm useful services and also potentially free speech online, including effectively mandating filters as well as creating what is being referred to as a link tax. Uh, we'll explain these and other concerns shortly. Now, as someone here in the U.S., I will admit that the process by which the EU creates regulations is still a bit confusing to me, no matter how much I try and study the issue. So I wanted to make sure that we brought in a real expert on this one uh, as the guest for today's podcast. So I am thrilled to welcome Julia Reda. Uh, a member of the European Parliament who has been leading the charge against the problematic aspects of copyright reform uh, and who can talk us through the problems of the current plan as well as the process it is going through and also, hopefully, uh, what you as listeners can do about it. So, Julia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, really happy to be here. So, uh, let's... Uh, Let's go through the basics here. I guess you know what what is happening and and when I think might be the the the, the opening questions to, to discuss. Right. So the European Union is in the process of passing a new copyright law, and I think this is in and of itself not a bad thing. Um, the way that copyright works today is that every single country in the EU, so that's twenty eight different countries, all have their own copyright laws. And at least in the internet environment, that is causing some obvious problems because um, if somebody, a rights holder, wants to sue for a copyright infringement, they can do that wherever the copyright infringement happens. On the mm -hmm. internet, that means wherever the copyright infringement is visible. And so the internet is a global medium. And by <laughs> nature, if you post something online, well, it's visible everywhere. So uh, we have the problem in the EU that we don't have a common 
definition of what you're allowed to do, like what is a quotation, what is a legal use as a parody. We don't have anything like fair use. Um, every country has its own set of copyright exceptions that are quite different. So generally, you know, having copyright law is not such a bad idea. And I think, you know, it can also be necessary to regulate the Internet. Like mm -hmm. um, we have the uh, net neutrality regulation that was passed by the EU. And before we had that, um, only two out of the 28 countries actually had net neutrality laws. So that was definitely a positive uh, Internet regulation that came out of sure. the EU. So uh, what has, has happened here... Uh, with this proposed copyright directive is that what started as a really good idea, which was to bring the different copyright laws and especially the copyright exceptions closer together, ended up uh, bringing very little in terms of uh, uh, new copyright exceptions and instead kind of a wish list of uh, different lobby groups, uh, hobby horses. So there is the, <laughs> uh, the uh, so-called link tax or neighboring right for press publishers, which obviously has been lobbied for by press publishers and particularly by the German largest press publishers. And there is uh, the upload filter proposal, uh, which uh, is also called the censorship machine proposal. And this has mostly been uh, coming from, from complaints by the music industry. So um, this is where we're at. Uh, and it's kind of, yeah, I think a proposal that has really gotten off track and, and gone in a dangerous direction, even though the original idea maybe wasn't so bad. Right, right, right. And, and I think that is important to point out, you know, and... You know, I've sort of gone back and forth on this in, in general where, um, you know, there was an idea that um, uh, copyright lawyer and sort of uh, copyright expert here in the U.S., Bill Patry, used to talk about where he actually liked the idea of different countries having different laws because it allowed for, for experimentation, which is nice in theory, <laughs> but but in practice, you could see where it becomes just sort of a huge hassle, especially in the EU where you want to have sort of you know, consistent regulations across the, the different member countries, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it's really kind of a trade-off. On the one hand, I think there is a big problem if we have really different copyright laws, like, for example, the Project Gutenberg, uh, mm -hmm. where different public domain texts are available freely for everyone on the Internet, has recently been blocked in Germany, simply right. because, well, we have different uh, um, lengths of copyright protection around the world, and... It, I guess it would be nice if this were the same and if these uh, proposals were uh, or uh, if these texts were available everywhere. But on the other hand, usually if the things are harmonized, they tend to be harmonized upwards. <laughs> like yes. when the U.S. last extended its copyright protection terms, one of the arguments was, well, we have to do what Europe is doing and they have <laughs> right. recently extended them. Of course, Europe only extended them because Disney and others were lobbying really heavily for it in Europe. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know, there's th this whole process of, yeah, you know, leapfrogging where where you know, and and the, you know, the the industry lobbyists certainly know what they're doing, and they'll target certain countries or regions to to pass even more stringent laws, and then go back elsewhere or go to international trade organizations and basically say, you know, hey, we have to harmonize, but harmonize always seems to to leapfrog and, and make things worse. So, yeah, there's they're definitely sort of competing you know, uh, interests and, and, and thoughts there. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, that, 
it definitely seemed like the intent, at least when when the copyright directive discussion was started, certainly made sense to try and do things in a way that would allow for, you know, if you had more harmonized laws across Europe, you could also enable more, you know, licensed services that would allow for, you know, better, you know, better experiences for for users. Um, but you know, if it if the the real end result of these is to actually, you know, clamp down on on user rights. That seems like a problem. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit. Let's I guess let's go. Uh, you know, you mentioned and I, and I mentioned the opening both the the link tax and the um, and the the filters, the upload filters. Let's let's discuss each of them in a little bit more detail so people actually understand what they are. So let's start with the link tax and and the, this concept of of neighboring rights because I, I think in the U.S. especially that one feels especially um, bizarre. <laughs> because we, right. I mean, we, we, yeah. We, I think in the in the U.S. context more so than in European copyright. Basically, if an a legal entity that is not an author themselves wants to have rights, they just have them transferred to them. And right. um, generally, this is also how it works in Europe. I mean, journalists, of course, already have copyright in the news articles they write. Right. And so it's not immediately obvious why a publisher would need an extra right of their own because usually they get the exclusive right to publish a news article directly from the journalists and they have them transfer the rights to them. So it's not really necessary to have an extra neighboring right for them. Um, and uh, so the this invention of having an extra neighboring right for press publishers came out of Germany. It was uh, first demanded by German large publisher Axel Springer, which not just owns the largest tabloid in Germany, but also has a quite profitable digital news business, mm -hmm. which is funny because the reason why they say we need this law is because newspapers are struggling in the digital environment. They are not able to, to make news profitable online, none of which is true for this particular company. Right. And uh, um, they have identified kind of the um, general shift in advertising revenues from uh, newspapers to Google and Facebook which is true. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. case that in the uh, offline world, before the internet, um, uh, you know, newspapers were one of the most interesting places to put advertising. And that is certainly not the case anymore today. However, I think where uh, their analysis breaks down is that on the one hand, it's not just Google and Facebook that has led to this change, but also eBay and Craigslist and all the other uh, places uh, that have replaced classified ads, which used to be a huge income source for uh, yeah. newspapers. And even when it comes to Google and Facebook, they make money with advertising because they use our personal data to target advertising to precisely those groups that are most vulnerable to them and not because they are somehow using the publisher's content for free and thereby generating this revenue. But this is what the publishers are arguing, or Axel Springer in particular. They're saying Google and uh, Facebook are making so much money from advertising now because they can link to our news content for free and then put the ads next to them. And um, 
this is kind of ironic when you consider that every uh, every newsroom is employing people to do search <laughs> engine optimization, yeah. social media optimization yeah. to make sure that uh, their their articles show up on social media and in search results as prominently as possible. And yeah. it's certainly not the case that they somehow feel um, hurt or negatively affected by showing up there. But this is kind of the idea that they've been trying to sell us. And they actually managed to get uh, the German government to pass such a neighboring right um, in 2013. And mm -hmm. it basically says that aside from the copyright that the journalist already has in the article, there is an extra layer of copyright protection that is held by the publisher. And because it's a neighboring right, uh, the object of protection doesn't need to be an original work of art. So in the case of a, uh, a newspaper article, in order to get copyright protection, it still has to have, you know, a certain level of originality. You cannot copyright right. the sentence Angela Merkel meets Donald Trump. Right. However, the neighboring right does exactly that. It doesn't, uh, doesn't matter if the sentence or a, a part of an article is original in any way. It can be a purely factual statement. Hmm. Nobody else is allowed to copy that. And that is, of course, a crazy idea because it's basically a privatization of language and of facts because there's only so many ways that you can express the same idea in a sentence. Yeah. And and, and then the idea, though, also on top of that is then that, that mainly Google and or Facebook would then have to pay the publishers merely for linking to those stories, right? Yeah, the idea is probably that um, people only use parts of newspaper articles on Google and Facebook, which is, of course, not true. I mean, I have a personal website where I talk about uh, my work in the European Parliament, and it has a section on press snippets where I just collect, you know, where the press has written about me. It's usually just a headline of the article or a short quote of basically what this article has said about me. And mm -hmm. that wouldn't be possible anymore under this neighboring right. I would have to ask every single newspaper for a license to be able to extract even those very short quotes from the article. And um, even the headline itself is protected. And that is, of course, a big problem if you want to link somewhere because... Uh, in many cases, if you want to link to a newspaper article, the URL itself already includes the headline. So it's it's <laughs> right. simply not possible to link to the, the article without using at least a small part of the article. And even if you don't have the, uh, the headline in the URL, well, people want to know at least vaguely what they're clicking on. <laughs> uh, so right. it's just, it's just uh, very difficult to imagine an internet where you're not allowed to at least use use the title of a page to refer to it. But this is basically uh, uh, what it does. And the hope of the publishers is that they will not have to go after the individual people linking on Google or Facebook because it will be the companies themselves that will be paying um, on behalf of their users. And, um, well, this was introduced in Germany, so we, we know how it works in practice. Right. And um, the German law says um, that at least single words and very short excerpts of text are not covered by this right. Because there has to be some kind of lower threshold. If it doesn't have to be original, 
it can't be, you know, a single word or a single character that is protected. So the German law says very short snippets are excluded, whatever mm -hmm. that means. And so um, what happened was that from the start, very many publishers said, we don't want to make use of this law. We give away our neighboring right for free. You don't have mm -hmm. to get a license. Um, but those publishers that didn't, primarily Axel Springer and a few other, they banded together in a collecting society and that collecting society started sending bills. And, um, well, they sent one to Google and what Google did was to simply not show a snippet anymore in the uh, right. Google News results. They would just show the headline. And... Um, the publishers then found out that a lot fewer people were willing to click <laughs> on a headline without a, a snippet, without a thumbnail picture next to it. And so the Collecting Society ended up giving a free license to Google to use their content anyway. Um, of course, they didn't give a free license to Yahoo or Bing or any other uh, smaller search engine or uh, startup that might be offering some kind of news aggregation. So in Germany today, Google is the only one who doesn't mm. have to pay for what has been <laughs> known as the Google tax, which is a right. bit uh, ironic, I would say. So it has effectively strengthened Google's position uh, in this area. Yeah. I mean, it feels so, like a, a lot of the, yeah, the sort of regulatory attempts end up doing that. Um, yeah. And that's, so you would think that, uh, I mean, this is kind of an ideal scenario where we have a, a near perfect experiment of what right. the effects of a law will be. And, um, well, we have something very similar in Spain where they saw the failure of the German law and thought, well, what if we make uh, the right of the publisher inalienable so that they have to pay, uh, right. like they have to ask for money for it. Uh, and that just meant that basically uh, large newspapers that are based on Creative Commons would not be able uh, to run their business anymore. Uh, Google News in Spain just shut down entirely and people in Spain right. today just use Google News Mexico. <laughs> and um, <laughs> So that was that was an even bigger failure than the German law. So we have two experiments of how this has failed, and that has not stopped uh, the European Commission to put forward this pro proposal for all of Europe now. But this is mainly because uh, the commissioner for digital, the guy who was responsible for writing this proposal, is a German, and he has mm. very close ties uh, to the German publishers. And, um, well, the, the lead negotiator in the European Parliament is also a German from uh, Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Party. So, um, yeah, it's very clear that this is not a European proposal. This is a German proposal that they're trying to impose on everybody else in the EU. So, so a basic question, though, I mean, how do they respond to the fact that, I mean, we know what happened in Germany with this law, which is that it, it didn't work. And if anything, it strengthened Google and certainly didn't result in Google paying the publishers any money. So yeah. given that we have that evidence, shouldn't, you know, I'm assuming that someone has asked them how, how they respond to that fact and, and how they can defend this sort of proposal when we know that it, it, it you know, worked in effectively the opposite way as intended last sure. time. Sure. So there are two common responses. One is to say that Google was breaking competition law by mm. uh, basically uh, not showing the for pay content anymore. And um, this is 
clearly untrue because the publishers actually tried that argument with the German antitrust authority. They, right. they went there and said, yeah, Google uh, is not showing the snippets anymore and they're not willing to pay. And this is putting us at a disadvantage because, you know, showing up with a snippet on the Google news results is actually good. And, um, well, the German antitrust authority responded that you cannot force a company to pay for your for-pay product, <laughs> no matter how large it is. However, right. giving a free license to one search engine and not to the other search engine may very well be a violation oh. of antitrust law. So it really backfired spectacularly. Like the, the antitrust authority was basically saying, go away or we'll start investigating you. <laughs> um so that that argument is clearly not going to fly. The other argument is to say that the German market was simply not big enough and that actually <laughs> uh, Google is suffering from not showing the snippets anymore and just showing the headlines. And um, if only all of Europe introduced this law, oh my uh, Google would not be able to do that. The cost of, of uh, not showing the snippets anymore huh. would simply be too high. And, um, well, this is also patently untrue because Google has already stopped showing snippets on Google News a while ago. So uh -huh. probably huh. for other reasons, maybe right. like they've just sh changed the, the layout of, of the website. I mean, I think Facebook still does um, this expansion of a link. Like if you if you post a URL uh, into into your feed on Facebook, it will automatically expand it into a snippet. But I think that can be quite heavily customized by the publisher. Like yeah. the website owner gets to choose which picture gets shown, which how much text and so on. So it seems to be very much a voluntary thing. Though, though I actually, I did see yesterday somebody had posted an, an example of Facebook apparently just changed how they how they display uh, news links and it actually removed the snippet and and yeah. I just thought oh that was you know sort of an interesting change but now I'm wondering if it actually has something to do with 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 this potential change to copyright law. It may be. I mean this this uh, law is uh, still not passed and even right. if it does pass, it would take several years uh, to take effect because every member state has to uh, implement it into their national law. Right. Um, so this is different from the GDPR in that it's a directive, which means uh, it's basically giving instructions to every right, member state right. on how they have to change their law. But it's possible that basically, I mean, you can see on Facebook that they are they seem to be a little bit fed up with conflicts with the publishers. <laughs> and yeah. um, I think also this choice not to show... Um, content from pages as prominently anymore and yeah. to focus more on people's personal posts. This may also just be an attempt to evade some of the regulatory struggles that we have, that they are um, having with the publishers because of course publishers have an immensely strong uh, connection to politics, even if they're not that financially uh, significant. They are so significant for the political debate and it's extremely difficult to win an election against the power of the publishers. Right. So um, their lobbying power is quite uh, quite substantial. So two other things about this. One is, you know, I, I still go back to the fact like, I mean, you brought up the fact that all these publishers use search engine optimization, which means they recognize the value of being, you know, of, of getting traffic from search. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing that. That would be a, right. you know, a total waste of money. Um, you know, but the, the sort of 
corollary to that is that they they also have the tools to completely block you know google google respects robots.txt which you yeah. know allows you to say you know don't don't uh don't scan this particular section um or, or these pages or an entire website and so there's this weird like obvious you know uh, dichotomy in terms of like they clearly want the traffic but they right. also you know they clearly value the traffic otherwise why would they be doing all of that stuff um but but then they just you know, it's this sort of weird rent-seeking, I guess, behavior where they're basically saying, not only do we want the traffic, which is valuable to us in its own way, we also want you to pay us for giving us this valuable traffic, which just seems so, you know, absurd on its face that, that I'm right. surprised that it's it's actually having traction other than the, the, the idea that the publishers just have enough power to, to, to make that kind of, you know, rent-seeking into law. Yeah, I think there are kind of two competing explanations for why um, these uh, large publishers are doing this. I mean, uh, the neighboring right is a lot less popular with smaller publishers because, mm -hmm. um, like we've seen this in Germany, um, some of the uh, news editors of the different online newspapers started publishing um, their traffic statistics because mm. uh, they wanted to show that the neighboring right is quite harmful to media pluralism. And what you could see was that the very large daily newspapers get the vast majority of their traffic as direct traffic, so mm. upwards of 70%. And obviously, they are not particularly dependent on search or social media. Um, right. The regional newspapers, it's almost uh, flipped. Uh, over 50, even over 60% of the traffic comes from referrals, so right. search, social media, and so on. And um, it's the most extreme for specialized news sites that... Um, generally only have a relatively small um, professional audience, but every once in a while there is an article that is on a particularly um, uh, important topic. Like, for right. example, a tech news site might get an extremely successful news article if there is a big ransomware incident or something like that right, that makes right. uh, international headlines. And um, so that means that if it becomes more difficult to link, this will hurt all publishers, but it will disproportionately hurt the small ones. So that explanation is basically saying that the the reason why Springer is pushing for this is to uh, hurt the competition, and especially the born digital kind of new online uh, competition, right. and um, yeah, to to basically lead to more media concentration. And yeah. um, the other explanation is more. Uh, along the lines of simply they're doing this because they can they want to they want to show up on social media and search and get paid for it right yeah which yeah <laughs> it's is it i mean it, it's sort of a cynical explanation but it's basically like look we have enough power to to convince the government to to force these other companies to give us money and therefore we will do it um, yeah you know no and, matter and if you look at the the lobbying um, on on this article in in the copyright proposal, it's really quite amazing. Uh, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, Axel Springer 
is um, reportedly extremely aggressive in their lobby meetings. Um, they have contacts all the way up to uh, different heads of states and prime ministers and are using this to basically get a decision at the highest level that a, company, uh, a country will support this law, even though everybody in the ministries who is actually working on copyright law doesn't agree with them and thinks this is a terrible idea. There has recently been an open letter from over 200 copyright professors and academics hmm. who are all saying that this is terrible. And uh, the, the Legal Affairs Committee in the European Parliament that is responsible for this law held a hearing. And this, um, like the way this works is there is a public call for tender for a study um, University of Cambridge won this tender. They did a study. It was very critical of the neighboring right. And then um, the uh, administration of the European Parliament made sure that in addition to the authors of this uh, study, other uh, so-called experts would be invited. And mm. uh, they made the decision that they would only consider experts that are in favor of the neighboring right <laughs> to make it fair and balanced. You know, it's like when you have a climate change uh, hearing where you say, well, 50% of the experts have to be uh, right. thinking that climate change exists and 50% have to believe it doesn't exist so that it's fair and balanced. Even though in the copyright uh, academic world, there is virtually nobody who supports the neighboring right, who doesn't also have a private practice uh, uh, um, representing publishers. And so the guy who they came up with as an as a independent expert is a professor who is also the lawyer of Axel Springer. <laughs> and of course, he said that the neighboring right is great. And he, by the way, said that the purpose of the neighboring right is not to generate revenue. It is to shut down news aggregators so huh. that more people will go to the websites directly. So that would speak more to that theory of what it's all about. Huh. Interesting. And, I mean, you know, one of the other things, too, and I, I don't know if this is true in Europe, but, but in the U.S., I believe it's still true that, like, Google News, for example, doesn't even put advertising on, on the Google News pages. They've always left it yeah. free of advertising. So the idea that, uh, at least here, that that they were, you know, profiting off of, sending all this traffic to news sites doesn't doesn't actually add up um, yeah i think um i think it's the same in europe and uh, i don't think that google is making money out of google news as such mm -hmm. um it's like a nice extra service to have and so those people who say um you know, Google will never shut down Google News for all of Europe like they did in Spain. They they just can't afford to do that. Well, I do think they can because yeah. I don't think that's how Google is making their money. And uh, if you're talking about contextual ex advertising, I mean, Google is obviously making a lot of money with AdWords and putting, you know, relevant uh, advertising next to your search query. Like if you search yeah. for car, you're going to get car advertisement in very simple terms. And of course, on top of that, they use your personal data to target specifically to your interest. And that is something right. where hopefully the GDPR will put a few limits on what they can do. But right. um, it, I mean, in terms of contextual advertisement, news are not a particularly good environment for ads. <laughs> right. If you're searching for a product, you're much more likely to click on an ad and actually buy something. Or if you're planning your travel, then if you're searching for news, like that's just yeah. not a, a situation in which you're likely to buy stuff. 
Yeah, and and in fact, it it can lead to, you know, famously bad examples of contextual advertising. I mean, there was a, <laughs> the, the the famous early one of like somebody reading about a a uh, uh, someone who was murdered by knife, and there was an advertisement for like some kind of like steak knife or something. <laughs> yeah, saying, like, yeah. This is this is poor placement uh, around news, where I could see that that being a a, a huge problem. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, so, so so this is pretty much pushed through just by sheer force of will uh, on the side of the publishers. Like um, you could see this uh, like, d just to explain a little bit how it, how it works. So the European Commission, um, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be uh, like the representation of all of Europe, they put out a proposal for a directive, and then both the European Parliament and uh, the national governments in the Council get to. Uh, to vote on amendments and mm -hmm. um, they then have to negotiate with each other to arrive at a final text. So um, what happens first after this proposal comes out is that on the one side the European Parliament is trying to come up with a position and on the other hand uh, the national governments are trying to come up with a position. And in the case of the governments this has already happened. They um, actually struck a deal just the beginning of this week and um, they have come out in support of the neighboring right. And um, this is quite remarkable because in the beginning, Germany was almost the only country who thought this was a good idea. Like the vast majority of countries was opposed to it. And they have flipped one by one quite rapidly over the last few months. And I've heard from several people that basically Axel Springer has been on a European tour visiting the prime ministers and heads of state. And hmm. uh, that seems to have been very effective. Uh, and in, I mean, there you also have to know that Axel Springer is not just a German publisher. I mean, they surely have their stronghold in Germany, but they have also bought up a lot of newspapers all over Europe. So I think there is a real media concentration problem um, and, and this uh, political power that they can exert is just an example of why it's dangerous. Like if there is a newspaper publisher who can basically um, win or lose you an election, then mm -hmm. obviously they're going to have a lot of power over politics. And in the European Parliament, we're seeing now that actually we've had a very open and public debate over months and months. And also in the in the large kind of conservative Christian Democratic Party group uh, that is in charge of this negotiation, um, there are critics. And those critics, I mean, one of them has uh, spoken to the media yesterday on condition of anonymity and says that they're being threatened, that if they don't vote for the neighboring right, they will not get any more positions in the European Parliament. They will hmm. not be put in charge of any new laws. And uh, so there is tremendous pressure from the German Christian Democrats to their party colleagues from other countries to support this law no matter what. And um, this anonymous source also said that the publishers from Germany are extremely involved and that it's very concerning uh, the way that uh, that they have access to politics there. So in, in, in terms of the country, uh, the, the country sort of signing on for this, is it um, is it every single member state or is it? <laughs> no, how is it's, that? it's not quite all of them. Quite okay. ironically, in the end. Germany mm -hmm. voted against the deal, um, <laughs> uh, and so did Hungary, and both of them 
are quite upset uh, with one provision uh, in, in the council deal. So in the commission text, um, there was no lower limit to what can be protected. So theoretically, okay. a single word would already be an infringement of uh, of the neighboring right. And then, you know, it's really a link tax in the sense that you cannot link to any news article anymore because you have to use at least a single word or whatever right. is in the URL. Um, obviously, this is not possible. And so uh, the council decided in the end um, well, there were two camps. One camp said, just like the German law, we're only going to exclude smallest snippet of text without telling you what a smallest snippet is. Like right. in Germany, courts have been fighting over this for five years. The publishers have spent 10 million euros on court cases, and we still don't know what a smallest snippet is. Hmm. Um, the other camp was saying, let's just you know, stick to the system that we have for copyright law where you have a threshold of originality and if something is not an original creation, then it doesn't get protection. And the same applies to the snippet. Like if a headline is so original that it would be protected by copyright in and of itself, mm -hmm. which is relatively rare, then yeah. the neighboring right applies as well. But normally, like if you have a short sentence, it's just not going to be covered because it's not original. And those two camps couldn't agree. And so in the end, uh, the uh, compromise was that every member states gets to choose for themselves <laughs> whether to use the one or the other, which, of right. course, for a news aggregator is a nightmare. Right. I mean, if they want to comply with this law, they're basically going to have to see whichever country chooses the lowest threshold right. and then apply that. And um, Germany wasn't happy with that. They wanted everybody to follow the shortest snippets of text. So did Hungary. And so they voted against. Um, Germany was also kind of unhappy with the upload filter proposal that we'll come to. But um, there were four other countries which I think largely have voted against because they don't like the link tax and they don't like the filters. So that's uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, Finland and Slovenia. Unfortunately, mm. all of which are small countries and they weren't able to, to stop the proposal. Right, right. Um so, so well, let's talk about the upload filters for a bit because that's the other sort of major concerning proposal in there. Yeah. Um, so, I, and I think that one probably, you know, it's it's not the law here, but um, it's one that we've seen people pushing for here as opposed to neighboring rights, which we haven't really seen a push for. So can you just discuss uh, kind of what the proposal is uh, in its current form? Yeah, um, so... The um, system for liability of online platforms is relatively similar to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Like um, in the U.S. you have the DMCA copyright law and the notice and takedown system. Right. And we have something quite similar to that, which is called the e-commerce directive. And it's not specific to copyright law. It just applies to illegal activity on, on online uh, hosting providers in general. And it basically says... Once again, it's a directive to the member states. Uh, first of all, um, you cannot make a hosting provider liable for the uh, illegal activities of their users, provided that if somebody notifies them, they take it down expeditiously. That is kind of the obligation. Right. And um, the second thing is that whatever you do, you are not allowed to impose a general obligation on the hosting provider to monitor their users' activities. 
And um, well, what we have now with the with the copyright proposal is precisely such a general obligation to monitor. So it's in direct contradiction to uh, what we have. So um, the uh, proposal in the form that it was now adopted by council, there have been several different versions floating around, basically makes all online platforms that um, uh, organize or promote the user-uploaded content for profit uh, makes them liable for their users' copyright infringement. And of course, organizing and promoting is incredibly vague and broad and right. um, it could cover virtually anything. I mean, um, I, I think the only hosting providers that do not organize the user-uploaded content, at least by providing search or alphabetic sorting, are probably file lockers you know everything right. else is is pretty much covered by this definition unless they're a non-profit um they are liable for their users copyright infringement and there is only one way that they can get out of the liability and that is if they um install upload filters that prevent copyrighted or a material from appearing in the first place. So the first time that a rights holder notifies them of uh, um, copyrighted content that has been uploaded to their platform, they have to ensure that it stays down for the future. So it's kind of notice and stay down. Right. And um, they have to do that automatically. They have to screen all the user uploads before they become available. And this is, of course, a general monitoring obligation that is not only forbidden under the e-commerce directive, but has also been declared illegal by the European Court of Justice. Um, because one of the countries, Belgium, once tried to force a, a social network to install such filters. And... Um, the Court of Justice said, well, if you force a platform to monitor all users, uh, all of their uploads all the time, that is a general monitoring obligation and it's not allowed. So, right. um, yeah, this proposal is quite obviously in violation of the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And it's also impossible to actually implement because, of course, what the European Commission had in mind when they proposed this was YouTube and music recordings. So a very particular type of platform and a very particular type of copyrighted content that it is at least comparatively easy to detect by an algorithm. But uh, copyrighted content is a lot more complicated <laughs> than that. Yes. Like... It can be software code that is mm -hmm. copyrighted. It can be a translation of a text in another language, which is a lot more difficult to detect automatically. It can even be um, a sculpture in the background of a picture. Mm -hmm. Or it can be uh, the use of a popular character from a novel in a film. Like, which algorithm is going to be able to automatically detect that? Um, it's pretty much impossible from from an engineering point of view to do that uh, without failures. Um, right. All the copyright filters that are in place today, uh, content ID and so on, regularly make mistakes. And the most common mistakes they make, uh, I think, are twofold. One is that they are completely incapable of detecting fair use or copyright exceptions. They mm -hmm. basically just check whether the content is present or not. 
And then if it's present, they take it down and they don't check whether it was actually used legally. And the other, uh, which is also quite common, is that they uh, make mistakes about who actually owns the copyright. So what happens quite often is that a small independent author uploads something to YouTube or some other platform and then a big media company uses it with permission, without permission, doesn't really matter, and then register their thing with content ID. Like, uh, I think this happened with an episode of Family Guy, for example, where they had a short YouTube video of an old video game. Um, They just used it without permission um, and then registered the episode with content ID and the original was taken down. (laughs) There are lots and lots of examples of this. Right. Yeah, yeah, so it's it's pretty much, uh, I think it's terrible for the platform operators, like the only ones who will be remotely able to uh, develop and pay for these filtering systems are basically the very large tech companies like Google and Facebook. Yep. And um, also, like, it's not enough to have the computing power and to have uh, the the technical knowledge to build these filters. You also need all the rights holder information. And that information is usually with the big media companies. So there you're basically creating a new business model for big tech companies and for big media companies to basically be the only ones who can develop these filters that will become mandatory for everybody from the very large platforms like YouTube over kind of professional platforms like GitHub uh, down to the really small and specialized ones that you've probably never heard about. Yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, again, it's it's one of these things that we talked about with the link text too, where you know Google and Facebook. I mean, they've already spent, you know, I I forget the number that that Google used to say about like content ID. I think it was like sixty million dollars or something developing. Yeah, that. something like that. And and you know, so all you're effectively doing is locking them in because at least they can yeah. make a, a you know even if their content ID is not that. Uh, you know, makes a lot of mistakes. At least they can make a showing that they've they've attempted to comply with this law. Whereas right. small, smaller right. platforms are not going to have any ability whatsoever. Um, you know, and I've seen you know I've seen some people say that like, well, you know, there there are third party companies out there like Audible Magic that you can just license their their thing. But like one. Um, you know, again, the technology is not that good. Two, it's incredibly expensive, especially for a smaller platform. And then, you know, three, it, it, you know, you're, you're, uh, that's, that's only for like a certain types of content. And you described yeah. all of these ways in which those kinds of, uh, filters aren't going to, to be effective anyways. And if somebody really wants to go after a smaller platform, you know, the fact that these, these filters are going to fail, um, just, you know, it's going to create a, a huge legal mess and a huge liability mess for, for a whole bunch of different platforms. Um, yeah. And I think there is a there is kind of a fundamentally wrong assumption um, under this proposal, which is that if there is an online platform where users can upload copyrighted content and that platform has a business model, that necessarily that platform is exploiting offers. Mm. Like take Tinder, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. Tinder's purpose is, of course, to kind of show pictures to people. Um, And those pictures are uploaded by the users, but they're usually made by themselves, not necessarily, like they might be using a picture that somebody else took of them. Um, Those 
those pictures are protected either by copyright or by a neighboring right for photographers, which we also have. And mm -hmm. um, obviously, the photographers of those pictures on Tinders are not being exploited by Tinder. Like, it's not that... Um, you know they they are they would have otherwise been able to sell these pictures like this is right. just not what tinder is about but the the assumption is kind of that every platform is a bit like youtube where of course youtube benefits greatly from content id and from the fact that um you know for a few pennies of advertising money they can get rights holders to voluntarily consent to keeping their music online you know right and and quite ironically when the music industry started lobbying for this law what they wanted was for youtube to pay them more they didn't want the content to actually be removed from the internet right yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's similar to the the link tax thing, where it's just you know sort of these you know legacy businesses seeing large players, the, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, that are making lots of money and basically concocting a scheme to say, well, they should just pay us more of that money because you know we're going to get you know a law passed that requires them to do so. Um, right. Although I do think that um, unlike the press publishers, the argument of the music industry is a little bit more substantial in a way, because I do think that Content ID kind of broke the notice and takedown system because, um, well, under the notice and takedown system, okay, it's quite tedious for all the, all the involved sites. And of course, the big rights holders have long since automated the sending of notices and it's not an ideal system, but at least it was kind of creating a sort of equilibrium where, um, you know, really valuable and interesting platforms such as like uh, the, the Internet Archive and stuff, stuff like that could mm -hmm. develop. And that's really great. But um, Content ID kind of put uh, offers in a situation where they could not organize and negotiate collectively anymore. Because instead of going to a collecting society and saying, hey, we would like to have a license for the music repertoire, YouTube basically went to every offer individually and said, well, you can either keep sending us notices and not get any money and kind of play uh, a cat and mouse game, or you can get at least a little money and just accept, you know, the inevitable that your music is going to be on YouTube. Right. And this way, of course, the money that every individual musician is able to negotiate is a lot less than if they were able to negotiate collectively. So I sure. do think that content ID is kind of the problem here. And the solution that the European Commission uh, has come up with is to make content ID mandatory. <laughs> right. Which seems backwards <laughs> right um interesting so so to get back to the fact that that it seems to pretty clearly conflict with the e-commerce directive um how does how does that settle out when you have sort of two things that that are in direct conflict uh what what wins <laughs> well we basically live in in a counterfactual <laughs> kind of post-truth debate now the european commission is saying that um, content filtering is not general monitoring, it's specific monitoring because you're <laughs> looking for specific copyrighted content. But of course, in order to look for a needle in a haystack, you have to look at the entire haystack. Right. 
And um, they have actually tried this argument in front of the European Court of Justice in the past. And the Court of Justice basically threw out that argument as ridiculous and said, no, if you um, monitor every upload by every user all the time, that's general monitoring. It doesn't matter if you're looking right. for something specific. Basically, you're always looking for something specific. Like, what else would the monitor <laughs> right. be for? Um, so, but this is kind of the argument that they present for why this is legal. And um, everybody is more or less pressured into backing them up with this. Like, if you want upload filters to become law, then you're going to follow this uh, quite absurd line of argument. And of course, there are a lot of politicians who want this to be true. Uh, not just in the copyright debate, but uh, as it happens so often, copyright is just the start of a general shift in what we consider acceptable online. Um, right. The interior ministers are just waiting for um, this filtering to be uh, accepted for copyright, and then they can extend it to terrorist propaganda, to hate right, speech, right. Uh, to all kinds of other illegal content. And it's quite funny that actually the European Parliament rejected upload filters against terrorist propaganda about a year and a half ago. So hmm. if we accept it for copyrighted content now, and it looks like we might, that basically means that we think that copyright infringement is worse than terrorism. <laughs> well, if you talk to people in Hollywood, they would probably <laughs> agree with that line. But uh, I think most people would find that kind of absurd. Um, yeah. So, so... All right, so let's discuss kind of where this is. I mean, you mentioned that the the um, stuff has been agreed to by the, the, the different member states. Um, yeah, so the national governments in council, even though six of them voted against, they have a position now. Like okay. there is a, a qualified majority in favor, and this is what they will enter, enter into negotiations with, with the European Parliament. The Parliament does not have a position just yet. We are going to vote on the 20th of June mm -hmm. in the Legal Affairs Committee. And um, its experience has shown that it is extremely difficult to overturn the, the decision by the committee in the final plenary uh, vote. So that means that whatever is decided on the 20th of June will most likely be the parliament position. And there are only 25 members of the Legal Affairs Committee. Hmm. There are 25 full members who get to vote and then 25 substitute members who can jump in if one of the full members is not there. So basically, those are the people you need to convince. And um, uh, you can uh, find them on the European Parliament website, europal.europa.eu. But there are also uh, a number of tools that make it very easy to contact your members of the Legal Affairs Committee directly. Like there are things like um, uh, liberties.eu or savethememe.eu, which are uh, different campaigns. There is Save the Link. Mm -hmm. um, which is run by Open Media from Canada. And all these uh, different um, uh, websites are trying to highlight the problems with the link tags, with the upload filters, and to make it as easy as possible for you to uh, contact your members of parliament directly. And I think, yeah, up to the 20th of June, our focus should really be on, on uh, contacting the members of the Legal Affairs Committee. 
but um, especially in the case of the liberal group in the European Parliament, it would be useful to also um, uh, contact the rest of the group because our liberal negotiator, our so-called liberal in the, Europe, uh, in the Legal Affairs Committee, is a French conservative who once uh, changed political group affiliations and hmm. now sits with the liberals. Uh, but his uh, copyright positions are really anything but. So he's one of the most uh, maximalist copyright hmm. uh, um, supporters in the European Parliament. He has spent his entire life in the uh, entertainment industry. <laughs> And I think he's about 75 now and thinks that Wikipedia is an American monopolist. So ah. you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, so for if people are not in the EU and we certainly I mean, we have some listeners, obviously, in the EU, but also probably plenty in the US. Is there anything, you know, in, in some cases, I think like European politicians hearing from people in the US uh, is a negative <laughs> or, or is it, is there value in, in hearing from people from the U S as well? Or what's, what is, what is the best approach for people outside the EU? Yeah, I do think it's valuable to still contact members of the European Parliament uh, with some that may work better better than others. I mean, mm -hmm. there are certainly uh, some uh, anti-American sentiments with, with uh, some members of Parliament, but I wouldn't generalize that. And uh, on the other hand, there is, of course, also the question how um, the U.S. government sees the whole thing. I mean, right. uh, I have seen at least, I think, the U.S. trade representatives um, describing the link tax as a potential uh, barrier to trade yeah. because obviously uh, um, this would apply to you know any any news aggregator that wants to link to um, European news sources uh, which are of course um, you know quite quite uh, international some of them and um, there is also an interesting addition that has been made to the link tax in the last minute, uh, which is to say that it only applies to European press publishers, so press publishers hmm. who have their establishment inside the EU. And this is usually done if the European Union wants to make something a standard worldwide, so that they basically make it exclusive to their own publishers, right. and then they will put pressure on other countries to introduce the same thing. And then they will, uh, in a trade agreement, grant each other reciprocal rights. Right. This is usually how copyright laws uh, proliferate around the world. So I would not be surprised if the link tax is going to show up in U.S. debates eventually. Huh. And um, as you were saying, the whole upload filter idea and the idea of making platforms directly liable for their users' copyright infringement, that's a debate that is already there in the U.S. So I think whatever happens in Europe will have a tremendous effect on the copyright debate in the U.S. and around the world. And, um, yeah, raising attention uh, to it uh, within the copyright debate in the U.S. I think is also extremely important. Yeah, and I think also, you know, even among you know sort of the the internet platforms especially the smaller internet platforms here in the US this is an important debate that that you know not all of them recognize i know github has certainly taken part and and spoken out about it but a yeah. bunch of the the other platforms i mean this is going to to impact them as well i mean you could see like you know reddit or um you know pinterest or or companies like that where it's going to have a major major impact on on all of them 
uh, and I don't I don't even know how engaged any of them are yet, or even if they recognize how serious an issue this is. Absolutely. I'm trying to get the word out. So I'm going to do a Reddit AMA on the 6th of June to try to, to raise uh, more attention to this. And I think uh, GitHub's experience is actually at least partially positive. Like they have really activated their community and said, look, it's completely crazy to think that you can get a license from all software developers around the world or that you can install filters to somehow detect proprietary software, which we don't even, you know, have access to the code to right. in the first place. Like, it's just not possible. And uh, this has been really effective. The European Parliament, which is still in the process of negotiating um, a text, has now actually removed uh, open source software development platforms from the application of the upload filter article. Hmm. And um, this is, of course, on the one hand, a great success for GitHub. On the other hand, it shows how crazy this debate is. Like, uh, right. you you basically take a big hammer and uh, uh, um, slam it on all the platforms, and then one of them complains loudly <laughs> right. enough, and then you create a specific carve-out for them. Like, right. it also says... In, in the in the current uh, proposal um, that it will not apply to not-for-profit online encyclopedia as if there are like five <laughs> of them, you know? Right. So, um, so it, it, they, they knew that Wikipedia was a problem. But yeah, that exactly, is... Exactly, exactly. You know, th that is an issue where if, if every platform basically has to go, you know, beg for a specific exception, then, then yeah. clearly like, I, there's I would, a, a I would problem. really like to see, you know, Tinder... Uh, activating their users or, um, right. you know, a blackout like we've had after uh, before the SOPA and PIPA vote. Like if something like that could be uh, t getting traction before the 20th of June, I think it would have a huge effect because um, the, the negotiator in the parliament, Mr. Foss, he said himself he has never used Tinder. He has never used GitHub. Mm. He doesn't know the platforms to which this law that he is writing will apply to. But he probably also has no idea how many people around him are using those platforms every day and how important they are uh, to to their work and to their social life and just uh, to to the way that we communicate with each other today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and we talk about this all the time, but all these cases of of politicians who are trying to regulate different aspects of the internet that they clearly don't even understand or don't understand how widely the, the regulations will have an impact. Um, I mean, that's that's a, a bigger concern. <laughs> We've already talked for an hour, so uh, yeah. you know, I don't need to, to dig into that so much. But it does seem like yet another example. I do know that, that there has been some talk among people of setting up some sort of, you know, uh, day of protest similar to the sort of mm. the Sopa Pippa mm. thing. I, I'm not exactly sure where that stands right now, but hopefully, you know, in the next couple of weeks or so people will get that figured out because obviously they're only about three weeks until I hope so I mean um, I think for me as a member of parliament I can get the word out mm -hmm. I can um, you know inform people about what's going on what the timeline is and it looks really like June, June 20 is going to be uh, the day that, that this is going to be decided for better or for worse. But it's very difficult for me to kind of get a, a protest or a blackout or anything like right, that of off course. the ground. So that really has to come from the community itself. And um, yeah, so far I'm not seeing 
a concerted effort to do this. Like I'm seeing that different communities are waking up and realizing that this applies to them and it's a problem. But what we need is for all of them to kind of uh, band together and get organized. Yeah, I know there have been some discussions. I just don't know what the what the status of, of those discussions are. So hopefully something will come together soon, um, perhaps very, very soon. And uh, we'll certainly let people know about it on TechTurt, and I'm sure that you'll uh, spread it and through uh, every means that you have possible <laughs> if uh, if it does come together. But this is, you know, it's it's a really important thing. And I'm, um, I, I've been a little frustrated that it hasn't been getting nearly as much attention um, as as other things. I mean, I know there's a, there are a ton of different issues going on in the world to pay attention to. Um, right. And it's it's impossible to stay, you know, uh, alert and and outraged on, on everything. Yeah. I mean, I think I think uh, it's quite funny that the decision by the council uh, on uh, the copyright proposal was made on the day that the GDPR entered into effect, which is, of course, brilliant because everybody is now talking right. about the law that has been passed years ago and that cannot just be changed right now. And nobody is paying attention to the law that might have much bigger effects on how the Internet works and that is being negotiated right now and where the, the vote is just around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully everyone who's listening to this uh, will now be paying attention and you can tell other people, uh, especially if you believe in keeping a, a sort of open and free Internet, uh, that this is this is an important one to 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 be involved in. Um, uh, Yulia, I want to thank you for for taking the time. Uh, and I, I know you've been putting a lot of effort into this and uh, um, taking the time to, to talk to us and and uh, you know, hopefully spreading the word through this podcast and, and elsewhere. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for having me and uh, thanks for all the great questions. I mean, I love talking about copyright issues. I could probably <laughs> do this for a couple more hours, but I yeah. guess your listeners would get a little bit impatient with me. Yeah, though, so. yeah, I could, I could talk for more hours too. But but yes, I, I do figure that we, we, we there's a point at which we're pushing our our uh, uh, the patience of of our audience. So, but I think this right. was this was a good discussion, and uh, and I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, we'll be back uh, with some other topic next week. Hopefully, something more uplifting, I guess, <laughs> or something that you don't have to worry about as much. But we'll see. Who knows? There are a lot of things to worry about, so we'll have one of those topics. All right. Uh, thanks again. <laughs> Someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the